scripture passage for this morning's sermon is found in Psalm 8, the entire psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray together. Risen Christ, I ask you to come. You said that I will not leave you and I will be with you to the end of the age. And the age isn't over yet and therefore I take that promise very personally for myself now and pray it for those who are here that you would be here in power to help me preach the truth from Psalm 8 and 1 Corinthians 15 and that it would land with converting and convicting and strengthening and healing and reconciling and humbling and emboldening and purifying, saving power upon this people. Thank you for your promise. Amen. So the question is, what does Psalm 8 have to do with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Let me give you the answer in a couple of forms and then back up and try to help you see where I got the answer. The answer is from verse 6. You have given him, now him there refers to man. What is man that you have blessed him in this way? Man in general. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now that verse, I'm going to argue, leads us, when you think rightly, Consider it in its context. Watch the flow of redemptive history. That verse leads us to the truth that everybody who belongs to Jesus Christ will experience what Jesus Christ has experienced. Namely, we will rise with him from the dead, and as he was made supreme, Ruler over all creation, we will be rulers with him over all creation in fulfillment of Psalm 8.6. That's where I think this text leads us. Or to put it another way, you look out over the world today and ask whether verse 6 looks like it's true. 
You, God, have put all things under man, given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under man's feet. I'm inclined to say David is writing this psalm. You have no eyes in your head or this must be for another time. Because today, if man were ruling the creation the way this psalm means for us to have dominion over the creation, there wouldn't be the world we see. Alzheimer's, cancer, AIDS, arthritis. It wouldn't be. The dominion would have been used to make it all go away. So, Paul, the spokesman for Jesus in the New Testament, quotes verse 6 in 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll go to a little later, and says about the resurrection that this verse... The dominion over the works of your hands is given to man, comes true for us through Jesus. And as he is raised from the dead and given dominion over creation, we will in him be given co-rulership over creation. So this psalm will come true in its proper Order. That's where we're going. That's the sermon. And now we need to back up and see if these things are so. The main point of Psalm 8 is really clear. This is review from last week now. This is second installment on Psalm 8 to show how it finds its complete consummation in Jesus. The main point of the psalm is really clear. It's in verse 1 and verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verse 1. Verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's really clear. When a writer writes main point first, main point last, you know what the main point of the psalm is. God's name, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. I am Yahweh. I am who I am. This name is supreme everywhere in the world. God is absolute everywhere. However... Between verse 2, or verse 1 and verse 9, you've got 2 to 8. And they're there for a reason. And the reason they're there is to put a peculiar mark on this majesty. So the main point is God's majesty, the majesty of his name, is great everywhere. And then verse 2 and verses 4 to 6 make plain what the mark of the majesty is, namely, out of the mouth of babies, he's going to establish his strength and defeat his foes. So the mark of the majesty in verse 2 is God's majesty condescends to get its triumphs through the mouth of babies. And the mark of the majesty in verses 4 to 6 goes like this. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Answer, very little compared to the galaxies. 
Verse 6, nevertheless, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. So the mark of majesty is God rules his creation through the lowliness of man. And you put the two together and you get one point about the mark of this majesty. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And in the middle, this majesty gets its triumph through babies. And this majesty rules the world through lowly men. You see the mark of majesty? Jesus, we saw last week, on Palm Sunday, enters Jerusalem with Psalm 8 in his mind. And we know that because he quotes it. When the little children were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, the Messiah is coming. And the chief priests and the scribes were bent out of shape saying, don't you hear what they're saying? Zip their lips. And Jesus says, yes, I hear what they're saying. And no, I'm not going to zip their lips because they're telling the truth. And then he quotes verse 2 of Psalm 8. Out of the mouth of babes, you have prepared praise for me. So we know that as Jesus comes into the world and as he comes into Jerusalem that last week, Psalm 8 is on his mind and he is thinking, I am doing Psalm 8. I am bringing Psalm 8 to its fullness and its consummation. I will wear the mark of this majesty across my life. Namely, I will save the world through servanthood. I will take my rulership through being a lowly man, as low as I can go, I will go all the way to the cross to die for my enemies. So the mark of majesty is being lived out by Jesus that was described in Psalm 8. So before we turn and watch it come to its fullest consummation in his rulership over the world after the resurrection, let's make sure that we see the fullness of Psalm 8. I want to put it in six quick observations. Number one, God is absolute. He has no rivals. When he says, my name will be exalted everywhere in the world, that name is I am who I am, Exodus 3.14, which means there was none before me, none after me, none like me. I have no rivals. I am absolute. Second observation. He is majestic in this name in all the earth. And he is to be praised for that majesty. Because when you, when you have words like, how majestic is your name? It doesn't just say, he is majestic. It says, how majestic is your name. That kind of language is praise language, acclamation language. So this psalm is teaching us he isn't just to be written down doctrinally. God is absolute. God is majestic everywhere on the planet. Pass the test. I know my doctrine. That's not what how means. This is about emotions. How majestic is his name? If we see him, we will 
Love him as majestic. That's the second observation. Third observation, God has enemies. Middle of verse 2, because of your foes. Now, who are the enemies in this psalm? Who would the enemies be? The enemies would be people who do not like in a childlike way to acclaim his, him as majestic and let him have all the majesty. His enemies are people who want the majesty. I want to be made much of. I don't want to spend my eternity making much of him and saying, how majestic is your name in all the world? I want the majesty. Thank you. That's the enemy. Number four, fourth observation. God's intention is to defeat his enemies with the voice of children. And give the dominion of his creation, not to his enemies, but to those who acclaim him as majestic. Fifth observation. Why? Why do it this way? I mean, you're God. You can, you can take charge any way you want. You can defeat your enemies any way you want. Why through children? Why? You can rule creation directly. Why do it through lowly men? Why, why bring us into the picture and make us co-rulers with Christ? What, what's up here? And my fifth observation is to suggest that the reason he defeats his enemies through the voice of children is because he delights to give joy to the weak who love his majesty and who make plain in their defeating his enemies that the power belongs to him and we get the joy and he gets the majesty. God gets more glory, it seems, in delighting to involve little ones, the children and the childlike, in his triumphs over his enemies because these little ones, once they have had a part in defeating the enemies of God, know it was him, it wasn't us. We're children. He's God. And so out of their mouth is coming praise to God. And God has set it up so that he gets the praise and we get a share in the victory with all the joy of that. And sixth observation is, why does he involve men, human beings, in ruling the world? Goodness, just rule it. You don't need us. And of course, that's true. And that's the point. His heart is so full that he shares the delight that he has in his majestic rule over the world with people who will acknowledge that and not grab it for themselves. So those are my six observations. And now we're ready to go to Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. So I invite you now, if you have a Bible and would like to follow along, to open it. Go over to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, about in the middle of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So here's what we're after. 
how does all of that, all of that grand purpose of God to be majestic everywhere on the earth, to humble himself, to get victories to children, to humble himself, to make men co-rulers with Christ over. How does all that come about? That's what we're after. So here we are in chapter 15. This is the longest chapter in the Bible on the resurrection. And it begins with really good news. If you happen to come in here in the category of enemy of God. Okay, so you came in here and when I just described enemies a minute ago, you said to I think that's me. So I've got good news for you now. So don't panic. We start at the beginning of this chapter. Verses three and four is the heart of the Christian gospel. I delivered to you. This is Paul talking about what he got from Jesus and what he's delivering to us. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for your sins. There's the heart of the gospel. According to the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, take heart before he launches into a description of the triumph of Jesus over death and hell. He's becoming the ruler. He's making his people, his co-rulers and all of his enemies swept away. He declares, I'm here to save my enemies. The point of verses three and four is I have enemies, people that sin against my father, people that grab majesty instead of praise majesty. People that want to be the center of their own lives instead of Christ and God being the center of their lives. Those are my enemies and I'm here to forgive them. I will die to forgive you. That's how the chapter begins. And how do you benefit from that? If he dies to forgive us for our sins so that all of our rebellion, all of our treason is wiped away and an amnesty is offered to all rebels? How did the the rebels get on the good side of the king? And the answer is given in verse 2. By which, that is the gospel, you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. That's the news of the gospel, the good news that Christ died for us and rose again. Hold fast to the news I preached to you unless you believe. That's another word for hold fast in vain. So the answer to the question, how do I benefit from Christ's work to forgive my sins? The answer is believe him. Hold fast to this, cherish this, embrace this, treasure this. Make this your life. Don't stick it in your back pocket like a ticket that you never, ever look at until you die. That's not what faith is. It's a holding fast. It's a cherishing. It's an embrace. It's a delight. It's a resting in him and all that he did. For us when he died and rose again. That's the way 
the chapter starts. It solves the problem of Psalm 8, verse 2. God has enemies, and he's going to defeat them. But you don't have to be in that category. Because he came first not to judge, but that the world through him might be saved. So right now, Jesus is coming to you through my words. You may walk out of here and in a half an hour be dead. And when you stand before him, if you did not believe on him now, you will have no excuse. Because he will say, I, in my providence, in the last hour of your life, I took you to church on Easter. I did that for you. You didn't go on your own. I put it in your heart to go because I knew what my servant would say to you and how he could help you cease to be my enemy and become my friend. And you didn't do it. And that's the end of that. So, you need not hear the rest of this sermon as an enemy of God. You may hear it as a friend. And everything else I have to say to you, which is quite spectacular, could be yours now. Because, I just have to pause here and say, to make this really plain, because we come from all kinds of traditions, right? Some totally non-churched and some growing up in some Christian traditions that get it all wrong. Like, it just can't be this easy. I mean, like, haven't you seen the movie The Mission? You've got to put a big weight on your back and climb the mountain. You've got to do penance here. You're going to get saved. You've got to do some penance. I mean, you've got 30, 45 years of sin behind you. It just can't be this easy to just say, um, I do now receive you as my Savior and my King and my Lord and my treasure. And I renounce all that chunk I've lived for. And I long for you and accept you now to be the center King, Savior, forgiver of my life. The reason it can be that simple is because Christ did it all. This is how we glorify Him. He did the doing. You don't do to get saved. You believe in the doer to get saved. Which is why right there in your pew, with no look on your face and no motion of your hand, you can become a Christian and cease to be an enemy of God and be a friend. Because of Christ's reconciling and bearing your sin. Okay. Now, I hope we're ready to hear the spectacular destiny for such people. So here we go. The resurrection of Jesus is relevant at every level of your life. Look at verses 17 and 18. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So notice those three things that would be true of you if Christ were not raised. One, futile faith. What a waste. You, you spend your time believing? Pointless. Number two, still in your sins. If he's not raised, the death didn't work. It didn't work. And third, if he's not raised, 
those who have fallen asleep in him, that is, those who've united to him, thought they united to him, believed in him, they're dead, they're in hell. But he is raised. And therefore, all three of those are the reverse. Our faith is not in vain. Our sin is forgiven. And those who have died in Christ have not perished. He is risen. And his risenness validates his death so that when chapter 15, verse 3 says, he died for our sins, that's valid because he rose from the dead to vindicate that great work. Now, we are ready to deal with Psalm 8, verse 6. Let me just quote it to you one more time if you don't have your finger in there. Psalm 8, verse 6 goes like this. You, God, have given him, man, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. We said, doesn't look like it. Not this world. So the question is, how does the Apostle Paul think about Psalm 8 in relationship to the rulership of man, the dominion of man over the world? Let me try to unfold it in four observations. Number one, Christ at his resurrection assumes dominion over all things as man. Look at verse 27. First part of the verse. God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, that's referring to Jesus. And it's a quotation of Psalm 8, 6. You'll know that when you see the next verse. It's a quotation of Psalm 8, 6. So, Paul, you might think, well, wait a minute. I thought man referred to man. Humans in Psalm 8. And here it's being applied to Jesus. And both of those are true. And I'll try to explain how that can be. Psalm 8, 6 is referring to man in general. And Jesus is the one who is the man who assumes that rulership. Second observation. So the first one is when Christ rose... He took charge as man. He's now the God-man over creation. Second observation. He is representative man. He is the head of all men who will be part of his humanity. His new humanity. Now, let me try to show you what I mean by that. Look at verses 21 and 22 in 1 Corinthians 15. As by a man, that's Adam, came death. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So Psalm 8 is on its way to reclaiming the world through a man. By man came death, by man comes resurrection. Now, verse 22, as in Adam all die, so in Christ 
all shall be made alive. Adam represented his humanity. Everybody that was in Adam came out of Adam and they all died. No human escapes death. All who now are in Christ live will be raised a second humanity. To confirm this, look down at verse 45. First Corinthians 15:45. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Christ is the last Adam, meaning beginning of a new humanity. Or look at verse 47. The first man was from the earth a man of dust. The second man. What an amazing phrase for Jesus. The second man is from heaven. So what's the point? The point is that just as Adam gave rise as head and representative to a humanity that bore the consequences of his death, and we die. So Christ is now a second Adam, a second man. And those who are in him, coming out of his life, form a new humanity and experience what he experienced, namely life from the dead. Third observation, who are they? Who who are these people you're calling the new humanity? We know who the Adam people are, everybody. Adam was the first man. All people have their head and representative in Adam. But who are those who have their head and representative in Jesus, giving rise to a new humanity? Who's that? Back to verse 22. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Who's the all there? It's made plain in the next verse, isn't it? But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ rose from the dead. It used that unusual phrase, first fruits, meaning he's like a harvest. And the first fruits of the harvest means there's more harvest coming. The other harvest is somebody is going to rise with him into life, sharing with him what he inherited. And it's described as those who belong to Christ. Who's that? You? Well, we'll give you a little test. 
Because the Bible is very clear as to who belongs to Christ. Romans 8, 9. He who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So the mark that you must have in order to belong to Christ and thus rise with Him is you must have the Spirit of Christ. He must dwell in you. Which raises this question. How do you receive the Spirit of Christ? How do you know that you have the Spirit of Christ in you so that you can belong to Him, so that you can rise with Him, so that you can rule with Him? How do you know? Galatians 3, 2 goes like this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. Not by works of the law, but by hearing of faith. So turn it into a statement. You did receive the Spirit, not by works of the law, but by hearing the gospel with faith. As the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, comes toward you in the gospel, faith opens and says yes to the gospel. And in saying yes to the gospel, I will have Christ. The Spirit of Christ takes charge in our lives. And then we belong to Him. And then we rise with Him. And then we rule with Him. One last observation. Number four. It's amazing to me how Paul does this. Paul is so jealous that Psalm 8 have its complete fulfillment in his description of the resurrection and the rule of Christ and of man over the world that he says something almost breathtaking. Now, remember what the main point of Psalm 8 was. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Last verse. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And in the middle, children who don't arrogate to themselves the majesty of God, but open their mouths and give praise to God so that through that kind of person, he gets victory over his enemies so that when the victory is gotten, everybody knows it's the majesty of God that's exalted. And he rules the world with not his foes who arrogate his majesty to themselves, but through humble men who say, I'm just a clay pot in me as an earthen treasure or in me as a glorious treasure. I will rule the world that way because then everybody knows the majesty belongs to the Lord. Now, that's the way Psalm 8 reads. How's Paul going to do that? Verses 27 and 28. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, that's the quote from Psalm 8, 6. Here comes the interpretation. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, namely God the Father, is accepted 
who put all things in subjection under him. You see what he's saying? He's saying everything goes under the feet of Jesus except one thing. God. Because God is putting everything under the feet of Jesus. The God-man submits to God the Father. Verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, that is, to the Son of God and us in him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, that is, God the Father, who put all things in Subjection under him so that God, that is God the Father, may be all in all. That's Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Even the God-man, the Son of God, says that. He wears the mark of majesty across his life forever. He is forever obedient. He is forever humble. He is forever meek. And watch out, lest you become a heretic here. And because of that, he is no less God and all the more majestic because he bears the mark of majesty that he wore on Palm Sunday, that he wore on Maundy Thursday, that he wore on Good Friday, and that he wears today going under the Father to praise him. You are God and I, the God-man, join my people in acclaiming you, all in all. And now, where are you in all that? We start by wearing the mark of majesty, meaning we go down low and say, I need a Savior. We receive forgiveness of sins because He died for us. We then... Wear this mark of majesty and lowliness and Christ-likeness and meekness and humility and servanthood and sacrifice for the sake of the world. The world doesn't need any more strutting Christians. It needs this kind. We'll go down low to lift others up and wear the mark of majesty across their life just like Jesus wears it forever. That is what you were made for. Many of the troubles of your life are owing to the fact that you have not yet fully discovered what you were made for. You were made to wear the mark of majesty. You're going to rule angels someday. You're going to rule the world. Both of those statements are in 1 Corinthians 6. I read them yesterday in my devotions. Do you not know that you will rule angels? 
Do you not know that you will rule the world? He says that to Christians because they're going to secular courts to solve the problem. He says, can't you solve a problem? You're going to rule the world someday. Which means we must learn now to wear the, the mark of lowly majesty. So I invite you to go down low where Jesus is and receive every gift he has to give you so that in due time he may exalt you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for myself, a needy sinner. I pray for my family. I pray for the staff of this church and the elders. I pray for the choir as they're coming. I pray for all the people gathered in the hearing of my voice that we would be willing to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and become like those little children on Palm Sunday, become like the little children in Psalm 8 too, and become the kind of human beings who are set and ready to be raised with Christ someday into a glory that will be so stunning that We will be tempted to bow down and worship each other and we will not because we will forbid it and we will direct each other's attention to him. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And we will together as we stand over the galaxies and rule them for eon after eon, discovering more and more vistas of your glory. We will praise you and not ourselves. This is what we were made for. And I pray that every person in this room would be awakened in their heart and in their mind to know why they were made. To know you, trust you, love you, follow you, obey you, enjoy you, be strengthened by you. Because we have a glorious Redeemer. And now we want to sing it. We want to sing it. We want a glory in our Redeemer.